what I want you to start doing is thinking about iconic duos, iconic relationships. And as you're thinking about, you know, partners in crime or whatever, I just want you to, to maybe get a, a duo in your mind. How many of y'all came up with Tom and Jerry? Anybody got that one? Okay. There's three of us. That was my first one. How many of y'all came up with Batman and Robin? Anybody? Okay. Now we're gaining some traction. Now, here's what I know. If I didn't get you yet, I'm going to definitely get you with this. How many of y'all thought of Monty and Gary? Anybody? Anybody, Monty and Gary? There we go. There we go. Our dynamic duo right there. Well, today, as you're thinking through that, we're going to be talking about relationships, the call to relationship. And as you're thinking about these relationships that we have, I want you to understand in the same way that Batman and Robin go together, Jordan and Pippin, Monty and Gary, Jesus wants us to have that kind of relationship with him today. And so what I want you to do is turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, walk through 6. And as you're turning there, I want to just kind of give you this awareness of what's happening. So John is addressing these churches, these house churches, which were spread out all over the known world. And as an eyewitness of Jesus's life, He's trying to affirm what brings about salvation. Not just that we're saved from our sin, but the idea that God is calling us, not just away from sin, saving us from sin, but he is calling us to himself in an intimate, personal relationship with him. And so he's trying to remind them of the gospel message saved from sin into a personal relationship with him. And that's how he's addressing them in this passage. So here's what we go. And it starts off, it says, my little children, I think it's important to pay attention to this because John is asserting himself as the spiritual father, as the spiritual leader of the church. My little children, he's giving them love, care, concern, that kind of care and concern that a parent has for children. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Very clear. I don't want you to sin anymore, which means that they are sinning. And the reason that they're sinning is because during this time in the culture, they had a high regard for the spiritual, but disregard for the physical. And so he's saying, look, I'm writing you this because it's important that you stop sinning. You're saved from sin, so quit continuing in sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is very important. Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, we see that Christ died for everybody that the blood of Jesus covers a multitude of sin and that his blood covers everyone, all you have to do is receive it. So the idea that there's a limited amount of coverage for his sin is not scriptural. It is a, a theology without a text. This shows us that the blood of Jesus covers everyone's sin, that it is available, forgiveness of sin is available for all, just not everybody receives that gift of salvation. He is a propitiation for our sins, not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know if you're a Christian or not? You keep his commandments. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, right? So as a parent, he's giving them hard, clear truth. If you claim to know God, but you don't live for him, you're a liar. Verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want us to understand the call that John is giving the church, that John is giving the believers. It is this. It is a call to perfection. He is calling them to live pure, holy, and sinless lives. Okay? Look at the text. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to accommodate sin. I don't want you to act like sin is no big deal. I want you to take sin seriously. And I'm giving you this word because you're sinning and you've got to stop. Okay? Very clear message. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this goes hand in hand with chapter 1. Chapter 1, if you say that you don't sin, you're a liar. If you have sin, you need to confess it. The reality for the believer, chapter 1, you're going to sin. The reality of chapter 10, 2, just because you're going to sin doesn't mean that there's an excuse to sin. You got to stop sinning, okay? So that you will not sin. What this means, so that you will not sin. Go to the next slide. So that you will not sin means that you will try to stay free from sin by avoiding it, refusing it, but then also confessing it when it does happen. So you want to avoid sin, you want to refuse sin, you want to make it to where in your heart and in your life, sin is not an option. But when it does happen, because we all sin and we're going to sin, you confess that sin before holy and righteous God. Christians will sin because they have not yet been made perfect. However, we cannot take the inevitability of sinning as an excuse to sin. So we see this clear call to perfection that we're to live holy and righteous lives. And what that means for us is our lives are to fall in accordance with scripture, meaning obedience is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. Following God's word and his teaching is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. Living holy and righteous and perfect, avoiding sin, non-negotiable. Living holy and righteous life, attempting to be perfect, living out our sin, making no excuse for sin, eradicating sin from our life, non-negotiable. In other words, we're to live clean, holy, pure lives. I want you to to maybe think back. Any of y'all ever owned a white pair of shoes? I got mine on today. Now, whenever I wear my white shoes, when I wear these specifically, there's certain things I do and certain things I don't do. For instance, I don't wear these shoes if I know I'm going to be around dirt. It's just a fact. If I'm going to go to a baseball game where there's dirt, I will not wear these shoes. If my son's playing on turf, I'll wear them, right? I have this mentality. I don't want my shoes to be dirty. If I'm wearing these shoes and there's a call for me to go get on grass and stuff like that, I will literally go to my car and change shoes because I'm that guy who has a backup pair of shoes in my car. That's right. That's right. I'll avoid dirtiness on my shoes because if they're white shoes, I want them to do what? I want them to stay white. I want them to look clean. I want them to stay clean, right? Those of you who have white shoes on and act like you're wearing black shoes or gray shoes, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know how you live your life like that. But God is calling us to avoid dirty things in our lives. We should treat our soul, our heart, and our character like I choose to treat my white shoes. Because God is calling us to live holy, pure, sinless lives. That we are to be clean in all of our ways. And since we have Christ, we need to live in the same manner in which he lived, which is holy, righteous, and perfect. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.1. It says it this way. 
Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Throughout the New Testament, you see this call and this challenge to live holy and, and sinless, perfect lives. The ancients, the forefathers of our faith, the founding fathers of our Christian faith, right? The early church, they were consumed with the idea of living holiness, came out of their Judaism. And I want us to understand this. We're not called to be legalistic. God is not calling us to live a life filled with rules and regulations. He is calling us to himself. And that means that once we are born again, we must live alive in the spirit and dead in our sin. We need to stop sinning because God is calling us to himself. And when we sin, there's a barrier between us and God. When we choose to engage in sin, the very thing which Jesus saved us from, we're entering back into our old way of life, the dead man's way of living, and we're neglecting the spirit that lives with inside of us. And because God wants us to have an intimate personal relationship with him, because God cares about our relationship, he calls us to live holy and, and sinless lives. And so for us, the motivation is to be perfect as Christ is perfect, to be holy as Christ is holy, to live set apart as Christ lived a set apart life. Not for rules and regulations, but so that we can have an uninhibited, pure, perfect relationship with God, because that's what he calls us to. But the problem is, a lot of us continue in sin. Like, we don't pay attention to how we're living. We don't pay attention to our lives. And so with white, pure, clean shoes, we might go play kickball in a dirt field. We might pay no regard to, to where we're going when we have those shoes and we, we live dirty. And the problem with the church that John is writing this to is they had no regard for their physical body, no regard for fornication, no regard for hate, no regard for malice, no regard for materialism, no regard for anything in their body, and they just live dirty lives. But God is calling us to live clean and pure lives. And, and he understands, and we see this, 1 John chapter 1, you're going to sin, you're going to struggle in sin. 1 John chapter 2, sin is not an excuse to continue in sin. The world in which you live, not an excuse to, to, for the way you live. If God saves you from sin, quit sinning. Live holy. Make this the motivation of your heart. And then he says, this is what I want from you. Live perfect. And then as we go back to the text, we see that you're not going to be perfect. You're called to perfect. But I want you to understand this. I got your back. I will protect you. Look, look at the text. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. We have someone on our side before holy, righteous God. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have, as we sin, Jesus on our side. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus can find salvation. His sin covers a multitude of sin. There is no sin you can do, he can do, she can do, any of us can do that is greater than the love and the coverage of God's blood for us. And so what we see here is that our protector, Jesus, is our advocate, right? 
He pleads our case. Jesus, our advocate, he is the one defending us. He is the one standing between us and the judge and jury. He is the one who is standing before us and between us and whatever executioner there. He is there defending our case. I don't know if y'all been paying attention to this whole Johnny Depp, Amber Heard uh, case that's going on. It's like this Hollywood drama that's playing out in real life in a real court scene that seems more like a joke than an actual like case. But as you have seen this, as I've been watching parts of it, mainly on reels, right, on Instagram, because I'm old, that's what I do. I'm not keeping up with the news anymore. I just see, see what I need to see on Twitter and Instagram. That's, that's my news source. Is, should I admit that? <laughs> no? I watch the news every, no, no, no. I'd rather admit to that than say I watch Fox News or CNN. Like, I don't watch that trash either. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, for real, for real. It just, man, it's just bad. Anyway, here's what I've seen. Here's what I've seen. No, I don't like Fox News. No, I do not like CNN. Some of you are like, did he really? I did. I think they're both bad. Like, anyway, I just like honest news. Just give me the, anyway, soapbox. Don't want to go there. Going back to the court. How many of y'all have seen anything with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? If you don't know the case, here's the thing. Amber Heard wrote this op-ed hit piece on Johnny Depp. It got him canceled from Hollywood. Like, he hasn't been really in any movie since. And he was about to shoot a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie in that, in that series, which I enjoy those movies, but he got canceled because of this hit piece. Basically, what he said is, you've made up all these lies about me. And so what you've seen are character witnesses that have come in to talk about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, his ex-wife. And what you have seen are two dramatic people that came in, not dramatic in that they were like full of drama. But what they said was, was really powerful. One of them was Amber Heard's best friend who used to be her personal assistant. And she got up there and she says, basically, are you mad at Amber that they're asking her all these questions? No, we're friends. Uh, why are you here today? Because I have to tell the truth. I've been subpoenaed. I have to be here. And she said, here's the deal. I never saw Johnny angry. I never saw him mad. I never saw him. any of the things that he's been accused of. I never witnessed. And I love Amber but I haven't seen any of the things that she says he did. And I was around her for years during their marriage, basically the whole marriage. And then one of Johnny Depp's best friends get up there. And he basically says, you know, she didn't love me. I didn't really like or dislike her. We did our own thing. She did her own thing. But no, I saw times where Johnny was bruised in the face. Um, I saw her scream at him and he didn't always say nice things to her, but I never saw her get physical or violent. Here's what's going to happen at the end of the case. Whenever it's finally over, the judge is going to make a ruling. And on the ruling, Johnny Depp is either going to get damages or not. He's either going to be vindicated by the court or he's not. There's questions about what's going to happen here. Whenever it comes to our standing before God, whenever the enemy comes and he hurls attacks at us, we have Jesus standing between us and our accusers. We have Jesus standing between us and our sin, and he is the one pleading our case, not based upon what we have done, but based upon what he accomplished at Calvary. He says, he, we, you, me, us, we are guiltless because I paid the price on their sin. I am their propitiation. What that means is he is our appeasement for that which was necessitated by sin. 
Sin required us to get right with God for there to be an offering of blood, for there to be a sacrifice to cover our sins. And Jesus defends our case as the one who paid the price for our sins. He took on the weight of our sin. He paid the price for our sin. And he gives us his holiness through what he accomplished at Calvary. Having satisfied the penalty of our sin, having satisfied the wrath of God as he was buried, he rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and he gives us, he imparts to us his purity, his holiness. Romans 3.25 says it this way, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How do we get it? By faith. How does anyone get saved? By faith, by grace through faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over our former sins. He covered us. He defends our case as the one who paid our price. He literally stands before God. He says, Brent, guiltless. Gary, guiltless. Susan, guiltless. Why? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. I paid their price. Paid in full guiltless. And because of that, we stand before God holy and righteous. And more importantly, or just as importantly, we stand with the ability to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Because he paid it all, as we receive Christ Jesus, we move out of sin into a relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, a personal relationship with God, a relationship that should drive us and motivate us every single day. Look at the text. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Christ died for me, so I will live for him. Christ paid my price, so I will forego sin and live for him. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What he's saying, if you, if, if you miss this, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to know God, but you deny him in every area of your life, you're probably not a Christian. Can a Christian have habitual sin? Yes, of course. Can a Christian struggle with sin? Yes, we all do. Can we do it without guilt? Can we do it without this conscious awareness that we're straying from God? No, we cannot. It's possible to numb sin, but at the same time, there is a conviction of the Spirit within us. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is what? Perfected. How do you have a perfect love for God? By keeping his commandments. Well, how, how do those tie into each other? When we keep his commandments, we live holy and righteous life. It fuels our desire to want to live for him. His desires become our desires. His wants become our wants. We become consumed with the knowledge of God and the desire to live for God because we understand that our best life, our most joy-filled life, our perfect life is lived in Christ, not ourselves. We forgo sins of the flesh. We forgo things of this world. And we become consumed with this idea that whatever God wants from me, I want for me and I will live for him. Why? Because he died for me. By this, we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abide in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Believers must live pure, 
to be in proper relationship with Jesus. Because sin creates this divide. It puts a wedge in our relationship. It creates a barrier because you can't live for yourself and live in sin, going after your desires and live holy and perfect. They, they do not mix their oil and water. So if we're like, well, this is my little pet sin. I like it. I'm just gonna hang out here. As you do this, God's over there because he's holy and righteous set apart. He calls us to be holy and righteous set apart. But when we're pursuing after the things of God, instead of our back being turned on God, as we pursue God, our back is turned on sin. But what we tend to do is we walk around with one clean shoe and one dirty shoe. We got our Sunday best, right? We know how to dress. We know how to walk. We know how to talk. We know how to think on Sunday morning. Hey, brother, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you, Sister Jean. Right? We know the talk. Monday, can you believe what this did to me? That guy coming, I'm going to get him. I know I should do things this way, but I'm going to do it that way so I can get ahead of my job. Angry, hate-filled life, doing whatever we want Monday through Saturday. Sunday, got my good shoes on, got my good attitude on. Even going to tuck in my shirt. What's with that pastor? Why would he tuck his shirt in? It's an untucked shirt. I don't have to tuck it in. <laughs> Quit judging me. Get your heart right. But God doesn't call us to be somewhat holy, somewhat pure, clean on these certain things and go our own way on these other things. Believers are to walk in relationship with God, which means that we walk in purity, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a, a beat down or a weight on us. Keeping his commandments sets us free. Free from guilt, free from remorse, free from regret, free from sleeplessness. For instance, have you ever said something hateful to somebody? Have you ever done something and just pray to God that no one finds out? What does that cause within your heart? What does that cause within your sleep? Turmoil, tension, stress. When you live your own way instead of God's way, you feel that burden you should. You medicate it. Or maybe you press it down and try to suppress it. You maybe ignore it, but what you don't have in your life is peace whenever you're living in sin. It cannot coexist. So, so what do we, we confess those sins one to another, as Frank John tells us. We live holy and set apart. Will you struggle with sin? Yes, you will. Is that an excuse to continue in sin? Absolutely not. God is calling us to moral perfection. Not because he wants us to be about rules and regulations. He wants us to be about himself. Listen to this quote. One's profession of faith is proved true by obedience and proved false by disobedience. Behavior provides an observable mode for knowing if a person is in or out of God's light. Here's what I know. The holiest people that I'm around, the people who live the most pure lives have no idea that they're living pure and holy. You wanna know why? Because the closer you get to God, the closer you walk in his light, 
the more aware you are of even the smallest of your sins. You become sensitive to thoughts that are not pleasing to God, much less the words that you say. You become more aware of maybe the lust of your heart than maybe the things that you actually see or indulge in. You become more aware of the specks than you do the logs because you're so close to God and that sin in your heart and your life just becomes disgusting to you. And you become more likely to avoid the dirt so that you can keep your heart clean. So how, how do we get there? What do we do? How do we engage? How do we live pure, holy, sinless lives? It comes from the motivation of being holy, and that is our relationship with God. You've got to have that intimate, personal relationship. The closer you are to God, the more intimately you walk with him, the greater chances that you'll live holy and perfect, pleasing lives to God. So, so how do we do it? What are the components of relationship? Because thank goodness for somebody like me, it's not rocket science, right? It's no kind of science at all. It's just a relationship. So if you're gonna have a relationship with God, it's just like anybody else. You've got to acknowledge him. You've got to greet him. You've got to show him your presence. For some of you, what that means is you get to a point in your life, maybe today, where you say, Jesus, I know who you are, but I've never asked you to be my personal Lord and Savior. And so I want to change my relationship, and I want to acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. Today, I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. For the believer, what this means is as you start your day, in the morning, you acknowledge God's presence and his role within your life. You speak to him, you communicate with him, and you allow him to speak to you through scripture. Maybe you get like a, a short little devotional book and it puts your minds on the things of God. You acknowledge God as God in your life. We call that greeting or acknowledgement a quiet time or a devotional. Just a time to where you speak to God and you allow God to speak to you. You want to have a relationship with anybody worth anything. You have to communicate with them. You got to talk. You have a terrible relationship with your spouse or your kids and or your kids if you don't talk to them. You want to have a good relationship with your friends, with your family? You've got to communicate. Tell what's going on. That's all prayer is. Prayer is not rocket science either. You don't need these and you don't need thou's. You just need to talk to God. It is a privilege he gives you to have that intimate, close connection with him to where he's gonna be closer. How can you be closer than brother if you don't talk to him? Just share your heart with him. And sometimes that is confession of sin, but sometimes it's like, God, you're so good to me. I just wanna thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your kindness. Sometimes that communication could be a request. Like one of the things that I've started doing Whenever I'm at that moment, parents, do you know whenever you're with your kids, when I'm at that, pump, that moment, I'm about to lose it on my kids? Parents, am I the only one who's ever been there? I've stopped, and this is my favorite thing to do now. I'm, I'm gonna be like, kids, I'm gonna pray real quick. Dear God, give me patience so I don't kill my kids right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs> they look at me, their eyes get big, and they know they've, they've crossed that line. If they don't stop, it's gonna go real bad real quick. It's great prayer for me and for them especially. <laughs> Communicate. Communicate with God. Tell them the things that you love about them, the things that you like, your heartaches, your, your joys, your celebration. Communicate with them. And here's the other thing. You gotta, have under, you gotta know how to act. Like if you're in a relationship, what happens is, is you figure out the things that makes people happy and things that make them sad. You figure out the, the triggers that might create something bad in their life or their heart or something good. You have an understanding of 
things that bring pleasure and the things that bring displeasure. The word of God, studying God's word, having a Bible study is not so that we can become masters of the words, it's so we can be mastered by God himself. The word of God gives us instructions for how we are to interact with him and others so that we can live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. We study the Bible for transformation so God can mold our minds and our hearts and our souls into his mind, heart, and soul so that we can, as verse six says, walk in the same manner in which he walked. Another thing that I think is critically important to having a relationship with God or having a relationship with anyone is you gotta remember stuff about them. You gotta remember significant moments, significant days, birthdays, anniversaries, times of joy and hardship. This week I was at, at a meeting, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and as I was in this meeting, I found out that one of my friends who's not on social media, he's like my dad's age, um, not on social media, he actually shares the same name, Joe, uh, that Joe's mom passed away. And he gave this financial report, and then at the end of it, this guy stood up and he said, most of y'all don't know this, but Joe's mom passed away. I love Joe, I respect Joe. And uh, they were like, His, the, the funeral's gonna be on Friday, and Joe's preaching the funeral, be praying for him. I was like, man, that's tough. And so I put in my phone a reminder on, on Friday morning just to send Joe a text. So I sent Joe a text It said something, hey man, I love you, I'm praying for you today, I'm sorry you have to go through this, I know it's terrible, but I pray that God will give you grace for the moment today, that's it. Joe responded with, thanks, man. I appreciate that so much. I appreciate your encouragement and your prayers. You have no idea what I'm going through and how much this helped. Am I a great friend? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Not always, to be honest. But you know what? In that moment, I was a great friend to Joe because I remember something important. You want to show God value? You want to show God love? You want to show God concern? You want to get to a point to where you show God that you value him? Hide his word in your heart. Hide your word in his heart because it shows value to God. Hide his word in your heart because it it, it prevents you from sin. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart so that it may not sin against you. It shows value, love, concern, that you value that relationship. Remember important things. If you don't believe me, try forgetting the anniversary or birthday of your spouse. It'll hurt their feelings. You do it upright, though, they're going to be like, man, I I did good. I married good. Remember things. It's important. And one of the the key components that God has given us to live the life that he calls us to, to be holy as he is holy, he's given us a church family. And y'all are fortunate. We're all fortunate. I'm fortunate. God's given us a great church in First Baptist Rowlett, a place to where we can share uh, the good things in our life, that we can go through trials, that we can go through hardships, that we can dive in with one another, where people love us and care about us, and they walk through the valley with us, and they celebrate with us. Family is that dynamic to where we share our lives and we do it together. We're in it together. Christian community is where we can come together to honor God, to where we can come together and challenge one another through accountability, challenge one another in patience, challenge one another to Christ-likeness. God's given us this great gift. And I hope, like, for me, for you, whenever Sunday rolls around, you're excited to be here, excited to see people and have the hugs and the handshake. I hope that... You get text messages and calls from people that say, hey, I heard you're struggling with this. How are you doing? Is there anything you need? Like to where you're actually doing life together. That's Christian community because we're not always going to do it right. There's going to be times where we struggle with sin and there's going to be times where we need someone to kick us in the pants and there's going to be times where we need someone to pick us up. But we always need to do life together. 
So the, the real question is, will you answer the call of Christ? 